spoils and ghouls. Lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! It's the Boo Crew Podcast, episode number 20. This is Trev. Austin and Rachel couldn't join the party for this one, unfortunately, as they were out of town on a secret Boo Crew mission. And we'll be back next time. A new Blumhouse film opens this weekend, the sequel to 2014's brilliant Unfriended, Stephen Susco's Unfriended Dark Web. Already being called the best horror film of the summer, we at the Boo Crew can attest it is a game changer. Leo, Tim, Lauren, and myself just saw it tonight. <laughs> Seriously. Don't miss this movie. Steven joins us for an incredibly interesting chat. Learn all about the out-of-the-box way they filmed and wrote it and uncover the secrets of the real dark web that is going to creep you out just as much as a flick. Hear the story behind his work creating the hits, The Grudge and The Grudge 2, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre trilogy that almost happened, and more. From a guy who couldn't be nicer, we can't even stop talking about him since he came here. Before we get to it, don't forget the Boo Crew is at Midsummer Scream in Long Beach this year, one of the biggest Halloween haunt and horror conventions in the country. Spooky exhibitors, vendors, your favorite horror personalities, and more. Come by our booth and say hey. We'll have Boo Crew shirts for sale and some free stuff for you. Midsummerscream.org for tickets. Use the code Boo Crew for 25% off. That said, let's venture online, shall we? If only I could remember the stupid password. Ah, there we go. Hey, this is Steven Susco, and I've just unfriended the Boo Crew podcast. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Dude, this is dark web. What's dark web? Part of the internet where no one can track you. It's all about drugs, illegal IDs, even assassination for hire. Yeah, the dark net is mostly about the bad guys. And this computer's got videos on it, right? Check this out. I can hear you. Are you still there? I can't see you. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an insanely talented screenwriter, director, and producer who is known for his incredible work as writer of the Sam Raimi-produced 2004 hit film The Grudge. He went on to create The Grudge 2, Lucky McKee's Red, Texas Chainsaw 3D, among others, co-produced 2012's The Possession. He's been called one of the most dynamic and exciting writers of his generation. He is one of the few that is able to spin a tale that not only delivers the frights, but delivers that horror that follows you home as you exit the theater. His latest project not only has he written, but it's his first time in the director's chair. Unfriended 2 Dark Web opening in theaters everywhere this weekend. We are so honored to welcome Stephen Susco. <laughs> Can I start with a question? Yes. yes. Was it my wife who called me the most dynamic? <laughs> <laughs> who the hell said that? That was somebody from Archery, actually. Wow. With that new project you're working at. We'll like, who do about. I have to send a check to? <laughs> <laughs> check it is a real quote that is not from a family member. Well, we can just, we can just leave it there then, I guess. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, thank you. That was that was a hell of an well, intro. Dude, thank you so much for being here. It's a busy week for you. Yeah, this, this is huge. This is this is like, yeah, this is kind of the downslope of it, which is really nice because I'm relaxed now. Really? <laughs> yeah. It was so, exciting. Yeah. Last, so, so last night I got to show my cast and crew the movie and only two of the actors had seen it. None of the other actors, none of the other crew. So that was the screening I've really been waiting for, you know, because they all just kicked ass almost two years ago for like a blistering 10 days. And I think for most of them, it was like a fever dream. And then suddenly posters <laughs> popped up and they're like, oh, wait, that happened? Right. This is, wow. uh, 10 days. About. Yeah. I mean, we had five wow. days of rehearsal and we had eight days of filming was basically the main production yeah wow, so it's gotta be some kind of record 
<laughs> yeah, that is insane. <laughs> wow. It's pretty intense, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you've written so much, but this is the first time you've directed. Yeah, this is the first feature I've directed. Nice. I developed something back in the day for Universal that we just didn't manage to get, but I was waiting for an opportunity to do something that would be different, you know? And this was different. This was a really weird movie. Dude, that is insane. So where did you do the actual screening for the cast, and how did they react? When oh, they- it was so much fun, man. We did it at the Regal Live downtown. Okay. Which is oh, like cool. in the heart of everything. Yeah, and, like right by uh, Staples Center and all that stuff? Yeah. That place? Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. Right down there. Yeah. Was it Which 4D? I, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the D bot? What, what do they call it when you sit in the chair and it rocks back yeah, and forth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a movie where you're using a computer. I'm trying to figure out what the 4D version of that would be. Like a keyboard pops up and you can type if you want and see what happens. It's haptic, haptic feedback. It vibrates, man. It vibrates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ergonomic keyboard, you know. Um, no, it was, it was your standard, you know, standard projection. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really nice because I just, having everybody back, you know, you're just so thankful for the team that you work with. They're the ones that you really care about how the movie turned out and you really want them to like it. So it was great. It was really nice to catch up with everybody. It was cool. We'll talk all about the movie in a bit. We want to start out with what's your earliest memory of being exposed to the genre and how did it make you feel? Mm. In terms of a book form, because for me it started on the page. I remember going shopping with my parents in the grocery store. There's nothing to do in the grocery store when you're like six years old and they had paperback racks. You remember those? Yeah. I mean, I'm probably older than you guys, but there's like spiral paperback (laughs) racks. I remember those, yeah. And there was one that had just this car and the headlights like pointed right at you. And it just said, Christine. Christine. And I was like, ooh, what is this? You know, and I was a young reader. I I don't know. I was six or seven, maybe. But I guess it was the the reprint of the paperback for when the the Carpenter movie came out. So I convinced my parents to buy it. And that got me started on the King binge, you know. So from there, it was like Cujo. And and, and my parents wouldn't. Cujo is a scary book. Cujo is really scary. The movie's cool, but the book is freaking scary. I I, I love Mm. Stephen King. It's really good. Oh, Stephen King's amazing, man. I mean, he's... You know, he's defining, and, yes. and it, but especially yeah. with character, you know, like yes. the fact that Cujo is not really about a rabid dog, you know, like right. once you read it a few more times, you're like, oh, this is about something totally different, That's you know, right. but they said you can't read The Shining. That was the first time. And I was like, why not? <laughs> so, of course, like when they were away, I found their hidden copy and boy, man, that messed me up. I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess they didn't want me to read it because of the abuse yeah. issue because I was right. pretty young. So that's kind of where it started on the page. And but, I, so I read Cujo is almost scarier, though. I think so. so yeah. Some yeah. of them are Freaking scary. Pet book. Cemetery. Yeah. That is a really frightening book. Yeah. That's a scary movie, yeah. too. Ter- and yeah. depressing. Very dark. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just seen that. it for the first time yeah. what, like a couple months ago. You're yeah. like, you haven't seen one of those few movies, you know, those horror movies that come up like you haven't seen Pet Cemetery. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to experience this the first time as a genuine horror fan at my age, which is a kind of a rare experience, right? To be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Dark Good, as though. shit, though, Mike. It's got God. Herman Munster. You don't go yeah. up there. You don't go up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a Monsters fan. That must have been like just amazing oh, for you yeah. to see him really, pop really up in cool. this movie yeah, with that sure. accent. <laughs> Sure, God, yeah, sure. I got into Clive Barker. I mean, it was like Ray Bradbury and, and all of those guys first. So it was the Twilight Zone stuff. And then as far as movies, I remember when Cable showed up. I think mm-hmm. it was nine or ten. We were living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The little box on the TV was like TV Prism. Right. And on the other <laughs> side of the street, it was TV HBO. Right. <laughs> but my parents were like, you're not allowed to touch that dial. You know, you get the little catalog of what's going to be shown. So, of course, every time my parents were like, you can't do that. I'm like, well, I'll just wait till you're asleep. <laughs> so the first night I came down at like, I don't know, it must have been one in the morning or something and turn on the TV. And I got really close to it because I was like, I had to have the volume really low. So I just did the like, turned it. Right. And then the camera is on this guy who's standing on the side of the street and it's pushing in on him as he goes. Urgh! 
and it was like the end of Invasion of the Body. Oh, wow. And, and the like, coolest scene. Fuck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's why I'm not supposed to touch the dial. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, yeah, it was the very final shot of that movie. And then um, the next time I touched the dial, it was the exact same thing. It was like, except it was the beginning of the movie. It was credits, and it was this couple like in a bikini rolling around right. on the beach having fun, and the guy goes into the water and doesn't come up, and something's wrong with him, and she goes up to him, and he turns around, and his like face has been ripped off. It was, it was just like every time I turned that dial, it was traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> what that one was called? Uh, God, man. I, Humanoids from the Deep, maybe? Oh, I haven't seen that. Wow, I was going to guess like Creep Show, the, yeah, right. the Raft episode of Creep Show. Oh, that, that was Creep like. Show. That was <laughs> Creep Show, like, show 2. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was born in 72, so I grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the sweet spot of home video oh, horror. Yeah, it's great. Know? And had like the really small town video store where it's like I had to not be with my parents to get the guy to let me watch the rated R videos and take them home. <laughs> so I just, that's kind of where it blossomed for me. And I think it was really solidified with the only video I ever stopped and returned, which was John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, wow. With the dog pen scene. That oh, yeah. thing happened. And I like stopped the tape, left the room. <laughs> Just couldn't take it. Brought it back to the store. Didn't rewind it. So the guy like I returned it the same night and he opens it up and he goes, it was the dog, wasn't it? I'm like, yes. Really? <laughs> He's like, you're not the first. Oh, man. <laughs> you know? That's funny. But yeah, I just had kind of had the bug early on. You know, I just loved it. So I started writing scary short stories and my parents got the talk from the Catholic school nuns, you know, because they're like, this is inappropriate stuff. That he's like you would write these stories and hand them in as projects and things yeah. like that. That's yeah. what you're doing. Oh, yeah, totally. I loved, loved being scared. That was just that became my jam. Isn't it funny that whatever our parents tell us, ah, don't watch that. Like obviously, probably one of the first times you were told not to consume a certain kind of media. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it, it makes you obsessed with it. Oh, yeah. That was the same thing. That's how I got into horror, too. It was like, my dad would go downstairs. Don't go downstairs. Me and your cousins, or older cousins, are watching a horror movie. What are they doing down there? And it became an obsession when I was old enough to figure it out, right? Yeah. And you go out and do it on your own and yeah. figure it out. You learn that as a parent really fast, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, you don't say, you have to be careful how you say no and when you say no. Right? Exactly. no can mean a bright yes. See, <laughs> I know? think our kids are lucky because they have so much horror around them that they know yeah. not to be scared. Like yeah. they see it kind of as an art where when their friends come over, they're so scared. Like they won't even, they'll pee their I pants. That's good because I, I grew yeah. up with older brothers and I was watching like Creature Features when I'm six years old. Oh, yeah. I mean, Night of Living Dead premiered in the Bay Area in 71. <laughs> I'm like six years old. I saw it. And so to me, horror movies are like family and yeah. fun and not really scary. Unless the exorcist. I don't, yeah. I don't watch that alone. No. no. Oh my God. That kind of thing. But it becomes like family kind of. For yeah, me. exactly. It feels like home. Yeah. It's really smart, actually, I think, to, to kind of do that kind of early exposure. Uh, there's something magical about horror, I think, yeah. especially when you get older and you sort of realize what draws people to it and what it sort of loosens in your soul, that kind of experience. You know, I think it's a really good idea. Sure. And I've been trying with my son, but like... I just can't. He's got fears. And How know. old is he again? He just turned 11. Okay, 11. So what would you show him as like a gateway horror film? That's a good question. I mean, I tried Monster Squad. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm, he stopped it. He's got some sensibility. See, we did like Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus is a good one. Casper yeah. and then the Universal Monster movies. Yeah, I've shown him yeah. those. But I started with the Abbott and Costello ones. Right. Because okay. okay. I wanted to do the same thing yeah. and to say like horror is kind of funny. So you're not going to show him your movies. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, he's, I had to like hide the posters just had to come down off the wall. I, I, I have all these awful posters for all oh, my wow. movies, you know, I haven't made anything sweet. 
<laughs> Even red, you know, red, which is like the most timid, I think, of all the ones I've, I've had made, is just like the poster's a little, a little creepy, you know? Right. This guy carrying something wrapped in a red blanket. Right. That's a Ketchum novel, right? Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah. And that, that guy writes some pretty insane stuff. Red is really sort of strangely distant from the pantheon of his works. You know, right. If you read all his stuff, it's it really goes deep. And Red is really, it's a character drama. It was amazing. I mean, I read the book and, and immediately like, tried to track down the rights. It was one of those things where you just read it and you're like, I have to make this into a movie, you know? As far as the trajectory of your career as a screenwriter, how does that process work? Is that what you do? Do you go and look for, could it be anything? Could it be a book you read and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be a great movie. And, and you mm-hmm. go about, you make an active process of trying to get something made and trying to write a script or do you get things that you hear about things are being made or you just come up with something how does it typically work for I do a lot of books I mean yeah. I've just books are where it always started for me it was always prose it was always literature because I grew up in Lancaster Pennsylvania I grew up in Witness and then became a teenager in Science is how I like to put it so like back when I was in high school you know movies were this thing that I loved but they were just so distant like you have no concept of how they were made when I went to college, I took my first film class and there was one screenwriting book. It was Sid Field's screenplay. And that was it. And that's the book that's like on page 17, this has to happen. And on page 31, this has to happen. But that was the first time I ever saw that kind of middle road. And I was like, oh, it's like a book, but it's it's more like a blueprint. And I ended up adapting the book that I was reading at the time, which was Stephen King's Rage or or Richard Bachman's Rage. Yeah. Have you guys read this? It's it's hard to find now because he took it out of publication. Wait, is that Um, being remade? Rage is never. He actually yanked it out of out of publication. You can't find it in print anymore. I thought somebody was making that movie though. They're doing Long Walk. Okay, maybe I that's think one they're people, doing that yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, and I heard Running Man might go again. Yes, the yes, Bachman yes, books. I don't know. My own wow. my theory about the Bachman books was that like that's where he wrote about stuff that scared him about the real world. Right, and he wrote under that name. I don't know. I've always been intrigued by the works he's done under yeah. those. But um, Dude, I love his audio books too. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Does he read them? Will Patton reads them a lot. I could just get lost. I listen to like two audiobooks a week. Really? Oh, wow. Seriously? Yeah. In his book on writing, he basically says it's the same thing. If you listen to it or you read it mm-hmm. and it goes into your brain, it's the same thing. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's in your brain. It doesn't matter how we get to it. Right. It's true. true. Yeah. So so for like, sure. You could say, uh, I'm reading Shakespeare right now. Arguably, arguably, that's the best, you know, if you're not going to see it live, but that's, that's almost better than reading is to hear it voiced because yeah. Shakespeare is yeah. so yeah, about, cool. I remember the first time I read Shakespeare, I was like, I don't, I don't get it at all. Yeah. We were reading Macbeth in high school. And I'm like, I'm just not connecting with this. And that was the same year that Mel Gibson's movie came out. And then our teacher took us and I was like, okay, I got it. Like, I I get now I get it. You're an actor reading it. It's almost halfway to a movie. There's performance involved, right? Yeah, it's a performance. Totally. And it's a lot of the actors can be good and it can sell a book and then you can have a really bad actor. Who fucks it up? <laughs> oh yeah, there's some there's some bad audio books out there. Yeah, there's some books that are uh, that are done a disservice by their their, yeah. their audio translation. What are some of the horror scripts that kind of became the Bible for you as you were learning to be a screenwriter? I really didn't read many scripts. Really? Honestly. I mean, I had one window of time where I read the scripts intensely, and that was kind of it. The college experience is kind of where I got into the film, and then when I moved out to LA for film school, I met some people who said just keep writing. They were like, oh, you if you've written a couple scripts. 
scripts just keep going you know just keep writing and i was also told i should get an internship and that i would learn more in like a week being an intern than three years of film school which was right. completely true <laughs> yeah i was lucky i met this guy who was like here's what you got to do don't just go to film school for three years and assume anything's going to happen so uh, so I, I right away got an internship and it was a company called spring creek productions at the warner lot Okay. So like twice a week I would drive up there and my job was to alphabetize their script library, which was phenomenal because nobody expected they were just ignored me and they're just like, here, just alphabetize all these scripts. And I read like all of them. Wow. Um, so I had like two or three months and all I did was read scripts. And, and once they're alphabetized, that was kind of it. <laughs> so like, that's kind of like a bit of a school for you, really. It was absolutely. Yeah, it was an, it was an incredible education. And because and, back then this was 95, yeah. you could only finding screenplays was challenging outside of right. the studio environment. Like you. Yeah. Have to go to Samuel French and buy them, or you'd have to go to some weird place that had right. them. You, you couldn't get them any other place. I love how your scripts open up big, like The Grudge, the first scene. Peter jumps out the window. Yeah, that was yeah. That we, we fell upon that because yes. the movie was that it was going to take a long like, time you, to go. You, you're just like, what the. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so unexpected. Yeah. That was yeah. So great. That was fun. Bill Pullman, man. That was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a weird way to start a movie. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. I mean, Sam Raimi sees this movie, Juan calls it the most frightening movie he's ever seen, starts yeah. going on this campaign to get it an American version made. This is the first script you wrote that actually got turned into a film. Yeah. How did you become involved in this Sam Raimi project, working alongside the original director of yeah. the Japanese version, the creator, really, of the, it ended up spawning like a 13 film franchise. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen all of them, too. Really? Yeah. Except the one they're filming now. Right. Right. <laughs> the reboot. The, right. The, yeah, it's a reboot. Oh, yeah, I think it's a reboot. Lynn Shea is supposed to be in it. It's coming out yep. next year. Yeah. The, really the interesting director, too. But it was actually Roy Lee. He's much more well known now. We sort of met on a general. I had been a, a writer for like eight years and, and I had started with a writing partner and then we split up. So I was sort of starting off on my own. My rep was like, why don't you lean into horror? Horror seems to be your favorite thing. Just write, write a bunch of horror specs. Because when you have a partnership and it ends, you kind of have to start over because mm -hmm. the people that have hired you previously, they, you know, they look at it as like a black box. You know, when they hire a team, they pay you and they get a script and they don't know like if one person did all the work and the other person just sat in the corner masturbating. Right. <laughs> right. No, they, they have no idea. Or like if you farm it out, you pay someone, which people sometimes do. They pay somebody like a oh, like, ghostwriting or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, And I didn't know that. So I was like, oh, my God, I have to start all over. So I, I wrote a lot of horror scripts and then um, I got a couple jobs and I had a general meeting with Roy Lee. We hit it off right away. Like I walk in his office and he's got all the Stephen King books, like first editions chronologically. Oh, that's cool. You know, and, and I'm like, oh, that's that's in my house, too, man. You know, and um and then I, you know, I, I said, I heard you're remaking Ringu. And he's like, you've heard of Ringu? And I was really into Asian horror. And he's like, I don't know anybody that's seen these movies. So we just kind of like had common ground right away. And then he said, dude, I got these videos in from Japan. I don't know what to make of them. They're not subtitled. I don't understand what the fuck is happening. It seems like it's the same location, but like different timelines. And he showed me some scenes right there in the office in the middle of the day. And just freaked me out. Like the sun's pouring through the windows and I'm terrified. Like, I'm like, what the fuck am I seeing? Wow. Um, so, wow. so I took him home and and got some ideas and we just kind of started talking about what it could be and he's like all right you're gonna write this and i'm like all right cool cool that's great and and then you know what we could do we could do this and more conversation turned into and then you're gonna direct this and i'm like okay and i totally didn't believe that like i was like okay that's nice of you to say but yeah 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 but then a couple of days later my agent was like i got an angry phone call from another agency because they had some clients and who called roy and roy's like no no i already have a director for this and i was like oh my god seriously like he didn't even ask to see anything that i'd, I'd ever directed <laughs> wow. You know? wow. roy is roy is a remarkable human being so we developed a pitch and we pitched it all over town and uniformly everybody was like 
get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> they would just look at you like with their head cocked, like, yeah. what? Oh, Wait, the ghost wins? What? It's not told in order? Like, I would pitch it with a dry erase board and be introducing these characters, and then, like, I'd be killing them and be like, and that person knows this person, and that person, and this happens. And they're just like, what is this? Um, so finally, Roy was like, you know, the ring is testing really well. So why don't we just, like, press pause? Let's wait a few months. Let's wait for the ring to come out in October. And the ring came out, and I mean, it made more money in its second weekend than its first weekend. Like, that just doesn't <sighs> you know, happen. You yeah. know? It was very well received because it's a killer fucking movie. Yeah. You know, Gore Verbinski. I mean, Jesus. He had already done the first, I think, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, right? And then the ring was the ring. No, the I ring think came he, first. I think he did Mouse Hunt. Okay. And then I think the ring, and then I think then, then Pirates. Pirates. Oh, yeah, okay. I think that yeah. was the sequence. Yeah, I think so. But so right away, everybody who didn't get it was like, can you pitch that thing again? That, that's Japanese too, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> Right, that's how it goes. Yeah, totally, totally. It was like what, we like ah, what right. last Fuck week, really, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so we were like, oh, there's the tailwind he was talking about. So when we started the process, we connected with Takashi Shimizu, and Shimizu was developing his own grudge feature. So we said, hey, you know, it'd be really fun is if you do your grudge feature, we'll do our grudge feature. We won't swap story. So we'll just see like how different they are because of the cultural differences. And he was oh, like, sounds cool. That's cool. Three months later, he sends us a print of his film and he's like, how's yours? Can I see yours? And he's already done. Like his movies, his movies in theaters. It's just like, oh my God. That's how they roll in Tokyo. Wow. It's like a movie and then they're shooting tomorrow. So we suddenly had the Juwan feature and the first person that we showed it to in kind of taking the pitch back out was Ramey and, and Rob Tappert. And Ramey was like, Ghost House, right? Go, yeah. yeah. So they had just started Ghost House. They, they had just closed a deal with Senator International, which is like a German pre-sales company. Yeah. And they were looking for a film to kind of get going right away and they saw the feature and and it was sam was sam was like yep this is the one and we're like oh my god yes you know i hadn't even met sam i wasn't at that screening but he was one of my heroes you know yeah and you're gonna write this and i was like yes that's awesome and he's like and shimizu's gonna direct it i'm like okay that's awesome you know like i was <laughs> totally fine not directing it if the original guy is gonna direct it and it was his idea to, to have shimizu direct it. It, was, it was sam's idea to do it in japan i mean it was just you know sam was the guy that like you know it was really roy started it but sam was the guy who really locked it in and then it was just like this genius producing to watch happen where they because they were a foreign sales entity what they did is while i was writing the script they budgeted it and then they did foreign pre-sales and they went abroad with this pamphlet that was like from the director of Spider-Man and the producer of The Ring, right? right? So people oh, just threw money hot. at them. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> they came back with like, I heard they came back with almost $5 million in, in notes from banks and they budgeted the script at like 3.4. So they had already made money and we hadn't even started casting at that point. You know, oh, it was just geez. like, so it was an independent film. I mean, it was, and they had assembled it and they had, they had, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was weird to watch because I'd never seen anything like it. I'd only written for studios up to that point. And then one Friday I got a call like right when we were about to start casting and they're like, we've given it to all the studios because all the studios kept asking about it. And they were just saying, no, we got what we need. We have our budget. Yeah. We don't, we don't need you. And they just played it so well, you know, and then one Friday they sent it to everybody. And on Monday they had like three or four offers and Sam was, had done Spider-Man with Columbia. So we did it under his deal at Columbia and they added, you know, like 5 million to give more shooting days and more room and, and to get some bigger cast. And, uh, but even then it was like, it was still like $9 million, you know, it was this, so it was this little thing that kind of kept snowballing. It was an amazing experience for a first movie. I just watched it recently. It just shows how everything moves so fast, the time, because the Karen character is looking for the old lady's house. 
She's there's like, well, you can find a map. You can take a, you know, she brings a map. Now it would just be your phone. Right. It's a really cool film. Though. Oh, thanks. Well, I mean, you know, Shimizu-san. And it was, it was interesting kind of trying Great to film. figure out how to make it slightly more digestible for Western audiences, but, but not too much. And that was Sam, too. I mean, you know, when we had a first cut of the film, the studio was like, okay, now we're going to tell you what to do. You're going to iron it back out. You're going to make it, you know, linear instead of nonlinear. And you're going to, and Sam really protected Shimizu and, and really protected the integrity the film and minimized the um, the changes that we had to make and now as far as being a screenwriter goes I'm, I mean I'm not sure how the process works but once you get a script into production do you fall out of the creative process at that point typically and your script is no longer yours or Very often, are you yeah. part of the process and are you there to rewrite and do things like that it depends on your director and it depends on your producers so was that your ending I love the ending the, the oh the in the morgue right. no that was a reshoot actually oh, really? yeah the original ending was kind of much more elegiac I think it's actually it's on the DVD it's in the fog of my memory I can't remember it I mean I think it involved Sarah Michelle Geller being loaded into an ambulance and then seeing the family like back together before all the shit went down oh. kind of through the windows of the house mm. and it was more poignant but it was hilarious because the studio was like she has to die she has to die they wanted that morgue scene and we did that and then of course Monday morning after it made 39 million dollars they're like she has to live <laughs> bring her back bring her back <laughs> and so, then it was a madhouse because that was a movie that you know was made relatively independently until Columbia and even then there was a lot of autonomy and then suddenly suddenly it was a you know suddenly it was a franchise and they greenlit the sequel the next week and then suddenly it's like the next week Week, huh? Is that how fast it happened? Oh yeah, it made thirty nine million. <laughs> I mean, wow. nobody. I mean, we were stunned, you know. Wow. And it was, but it was very strange to kind of watch the birth of the franchise and then the second movie happen. Like the first thing that happened was was I was fired. Shimizu tried to fire me. Really? Yeah. He, he was like, I want this guy off, and and everybody, nobody could figure out why, and and I didn't know why, and you know, because it was like we just made a hit movie, and and the first thing that happened was the director summarily tried to. You know, kick me off, and it, it was very that so. Biz- does very that have bizarre. something to do with the approach of just having totally different stories and different approaches to the maybe to the theme? It or? felt personal. Really, I was actually Aww. fired. I think four or five times off of Grudge Two uh, over the course of what the, the hell. It was, oh dude, it was wild. But this, you know, again, like it's an answer to your question. Sometimes these things take a life of their own, and right. and so what happened was it, it went from being this very small group of people who kind of saw something that no one else really saw and they put it out in theaters going, well, it tested. All right. Like, let's see what happens. And then it just was like, holy shit, people like it. Suddenly it's a franchise, right? So then suddenly every meeting is at the studio. Every you're getting tons of notes from tons of people and suddenly it becomes a little bit more group thinky. And it's just a, you know, it's just an entirely different environment where some movies thrive and some movies don't. And this one did not, it did not thrive in, in that environment where suddenly, it, suddenly there were expectations as opposed to people are like, what is this little thing? So it was, it was a very challenged process. And I learned a lot because I kind of feel like I got to watch like the growth and, and quasi disruption of, of a franchise all within, you know, a three year period. So <laughs> right. it was incredibly educational and I'm really thankful for it. You know, it was, it hurt at the time, but I learned a great deal about filmmaking from it. And then the grudge three, there's a grudge three, mm-hmm. there's directed three. DVD. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, yeah, then they're going to revisit it again, try it all over in 2019. Yeah, and they did like five or six in, in Japan. Um, and then, yeah, so now the, the reboot of the reboot of the remake. Wow. The reboot. 
What's your take on the reboot mentality? I'm sometimes cynical towards it because it's very, it's sort of strictly business. It's like, well, this worked before and there's pre-awareness, so let's just dust it off. And, you know, it's this sort of studio library. Is it just for like the next generation? It's like, hey, let's just do it for the millennials now. Yeah, you know? sort of. I mean, I think the window now has become like 13 years or something. I mean, Grudge oh. was about 2004. Okay. They greenlit the sequel. This says 14 years. I don't know. Yeah, the window, the window is odd. Yeah, you that's, know? yeah that's really strange. Yeah, And it's not like, I mean, but like a franchise is dope, but like a reboot is weird. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, it's, you know that it can work. I, I think it's just, I don't know, maybe there's... Yeah, because I guess the thing was a reboot. John Carpenter's thing was a reboot. Technically, yeah, yeah, it was, it was very, very different. Asian Body Snatchers yeah. what we, what you... Yeah, and there were so many versions. Was, Abel Ferrara's version. Reboot. So yeah, reboots yeah. work. Yeah, they can so totally they can work. work. Yeah, I think I think it's all in the approach. You know, like you can you can watch a movie and you can sniff out what their intent was i think you know as you're as you're sitting through it like you know look at rob zombies halloween you know that right. was that was halloween done through the prism of an extremely unique filmmaker who said this is rob zombies halloween right you know like if i had made the movie this is what i would have done so it's a really interesting sort of artifact in that case you yeah. know have you, you know? seen the original invasion of the body snatchers i've seen all of them yeah, yeah. The first one's good too huh? i think they're all pretty good yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean I, the original black and white one that right. was a kaufman one yeah um abel ferrara which is really underrepresented these right. days people kind of i think they missed that one for some reason with, with yeah. gabrielle anwar mm -hmm. at the military base it, yeah. it had some really cool subtext to yep. it and even the uh, the Warner Brothers one was interesting, although I think that was kind of a trouble production, right? It was they had the director who directed the Lives of Others, that the mm -hmm. German film, and I think he was replaced. And then the Wachowskis came in and, and did some new work on it. So it's hard to gauge a movie when you have a director transition, you, right? You know? Yeah, I had a movie like that. Red was like that. You know, Red was there was a director shift. At the end of the day, it's really tough to critic, you know, be objective on something like that because you have two different visions. Yeah, times of the movie, you know, right. it's uncomfortable. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, the reboot thing, I think it's all about the approach, you know, like I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with Halloween, which is kind of, it seems like it's sort of, it's a sequel to not the other movie. Like it's, it skips H2O and goes to what they get H4O or skips number two skips two. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's a directly, which Texas Chainsaw 3D was, yeah. was like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Texas Chainsaw 3D, my, my credit on that is very peripheral. My history with that was I was very close with Twisted Pictures, Mark Berg and, and Oren Kulis and Greg Hoffman's company. Mm -hmm. I was repped by them, by their management company when The Grudge came out, which was also the same time that they produced Saw. I had I had a little birthday party when The Grudge came out and like James and Lee were there and, wow. and who were just like the nicest guys ever. So it was, it was interesting because then their movie just turned into this massive franchise. Exactly. With Darren Bousman's yeah. script and it was really, really cool to sort of watch so I've been close to those guys for a while and they approached me at one point and said, we're trying to get the rights to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's like all these parties we have to get the rights from because those guys didn't really get along. You know, this, it's a very complicated situation with well, those rights. Who, who owned it at that? Was it Platinum Dunes? Platinum Dunes did like two, I think, with, yeah. with New Line. They did the first remake and then they had a prequel that's when these guys came in and their sort of approach which they did with saw was they said you know you're getting like a big check from this these studios and then they're just running away with everything else if you give us the rights we'll make it with you and you'll be partners in the take they were sort of like before blum and saying we're trying to do things on a smaller scale sure so they said they got them to listen but they said they won't give it to us unless we have a, a take on it and i was like i think i know what i would do and i so i pitched them a trilogy and the trill the whole idea of the trilogy was it was one long movie told in three parts 
And my idea was was to go back to the first movie and treat it as if someone had like lifted the needle off the record and we just put it back down. So I was like, the movie's going to start in the back of that car and we're going to shoot it 16 millimeter. We're going to shoot it handheld. Um, and we're going to have the movie one be that day because it starts off at dawn and movie two is the day after movie three is the day after that. And what's going to happen is we're going to answer all the questions of like, how come they were able to do this for so long and no one found out? Yeah. How were the police involved? What was going on with the community? So I developed this whole story and we pitched it and everybody got on board and Toby Hooper was going to like direct movie two. In fact, James Wan for a while was maybe going to direct the first movie and oh, like, wow. we had a couple dinners and it was it was really exciting and they were going to launch it at Comic-Con as this big thing where it was oh, like man. movie one was going to be Easter, movie two was going to be Thanksgiving, movie three was going to be the next Easter. Like it was, it was going to be really cool. You know, it was going to be, I think, what people wanted. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a huge yeah. chainsaw freak. Oh, so dude. that just sounds amazing. I was so excited about it. I was so excited about it. And then it, and then it kind of just all changed, you know, like they could have financed it themselves. The idea was to do all three movies for $10 million total and just do it super small and have total control and something changed to the company that made them want to bring in a, a studio early on and then the studio said well we have some thoughts we want it to be pg-13 we don't want there to be any cannibalism what texas chainsaw massacre well but, but, but wow. if you think about it what's the title of the movie it's texas chainsaw 3d that's right right that's right yes. out the word that's massacre. right that's that's <laughs> oh why they did oh, it's because they they were yeah it was very very strange and uh so and so basically they came on board and then they didn't want to do what I developed. They wanted to do something much more conventional and set in present day. My heart wasn't into that, you know, so I, I just kind of bowed out. But they kept sort of a fundamental idea about a character being related to Leatherface. Because right, the right. thing that always intrigued me about him in like the pantheon of horror icons, you know, like Mike Myers and, and Freddy Krueger and all that was he was kind of the one, the one of them that seemed like he was innocent. That he just kind of, you know, it's like racists, you know, like your average racist is somebody who's never left their hometown and, right. and has been told all sorts of things and they haven't had any data to contradict what they've been told. And the moment they leave, something probably switches and they go, wait a second, this was all bullshit. It's yeah. sunlight, right? And so, so he always seemed to me to be, he was mentally impaired. He had this crazy quote family who just said, if they're not part of our family, they're meat. So just like any other animal, right? Right. So, so he was victimized, basically. Yeah. He, he was he was raised a certain way, exactly. Yeah. So I just always thought it'd be interesting to kind of figure out what if you told this story and you really got into that and you almost turned him into like a sympathetic, you almost redeem him somehow. Like you, you turn him into this very tragic sort of Frankensteinian kind of figure. Yeah. That just really interested me, you know? And when it kind of fell into the studio thing, it kind of just turned into like, look, this is a horror franchise. He has to run around with a chainsaw and kill teenagers. So, but, but they did keep that one element. They kept that there's a character who's related to him. And then yeah. that's kind of the origin of the story. So, so that was sort of enough for me to, to be involved in a story credit. And look, and the thing is I love the writers who came in and I, I really, th I thought what they did was awesome, but I certainly can't really take any credit for it because it was, I had a completely different different concept you know wow no but even, i liked it as much as you did i like what they did did you have an idea to have it in, even in 3d was that even a part oh, yeah, of yeah i wrote the movie in 3d yeah i i had this big i wrote a 3d treatise actually really they really want to do 3d and i was like yes totally but not 3d where it's like i'm sweeping the floor oh and look right. out <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, so I really, you know, I kind of pitched the, what James Cameron did with Avatar, what, what Ridley Scott did, although he, he did Prometheus after where it was like a window into a world that you could reach into. Yeah. Not something that's flying out at you. Gotcha. Yeah. So you not know. all about just blood spraying on the screen or the chainsaw dipping into your face. Exactly. It's more about, wow. Yeah, immersive. It, yeah. Because the thing is we, you know, doing it small, we, we had everybody on board with doing
doing something really terrifying and relentless and kind of non-obligatory. So I actually wrote all of the 3D into the script and <sighs> said how the 3D scenes were. So like I had a scene where someone was under a table as someone was being sort of butchered above them and described how like the arm is hanging in the foreground. And because it's like you can put the audience under the fucking table. You know, it's not about throwing things yeah. at the audience. It's about right. placing them in the scene and making oh. them feel, you know, like imagine Atmos, which throws stuff up yeah. and hearing the weight of this body being butchered on the table above you. I mean, just the potentials yep. for that stuff is, is breathtaking. Oh, yeah. that is so great. So it was, it was really fun and I, I certainly don't regret it, but, uh, but you know, again, it's like every one of these things you work on just kind of becomes a lesson in like how stuff gets done, how stuff falls apart. And sometimes you just have to close one book and open up the next, you know, and just, just yeah. move forward. It's just kind of part of the business. Right. Well, I'm sure Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw will roll back <laughs> your way. <laughs> I'm waiting to see if they're going to do like Freddy versus Jason. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's on the way. Pat's had, had written a treatment for Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this. I've That's heard about it. No, that was real. I mean, that he, actually he was he was pushing that thing so hard, and it would have been it would have been pretty cool. I think. I just think they couldn't get the rights together. But mm. man, that would have been fun. I think it was. Adam Marcus, I believe, who ended up being one of the writers yeah. on mm-hmm. Chainsaw 3D, yep. who did Jason Goes to Hell. Jason Goes to Hell. Which, is, and which he, is one of my favorite ones. And he yeah. dropped Ash inside that world as well, yeah. right? With the Necronomicon. There's a Necronomicon uh-huh. sitting in one <laughs> yeah. of the scenes, right? Marcus is awesome. That's I mean, he, awesome. Yeah, he's, so, he's so playful with, with the stuff. I, I love the way that he writes. I've read a lot of his scripts and he's, wow. he's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think the thing is I think they did a good job, like given the constraints of what the studio wanted. I think they, they turned it into a really fun movie. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's go to Unfriended. I mean, what did you think of the first one? I fucking loved it. I fucking one. loved it. I saw <laughs> I saw it twice in theaters. I mean really? I, I was blown away by it. Because they, they single handedly created a new genre of horror film. They really yes, did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not everybody calls it found footage. It's like it's not found footage. Found not footage. At all. Found footage is I mean, I love found footage, especially when it works really well. Yeah, like, found right. footage is passive. It's it's already happened. Yeah. It was recorded and you found it, right? It works wonderfully. But what he did is he made something that's happening right now. Right. Exactly. And not only is it right now, you're the protagonist. Right. right. You're the person who's using the computer. I mean, it was just shocking. And then the way that the mouse became an editorial tool and the way that emotions could be conveyed with a mouse. I mean, it was yep. mind blowing. It was not it was not boring for one second. When you, by concept, you're like, oh, just this is all, all the actions happening on this one computer right. monitor you'd think oh maybe it gets boring totally works no, it's amazing totally works i mean nelson greaves who you know he wrote the first movie and he was he was very involved in producing the first movie too he was very involved in this one which was great because you know it was such a singular film and it was great to have all the people who who did it involved in the next one the first one was shot in one house is that true yeah that's mm-hmm. impressive so every like most room of it i mean they ended up doing some green screen because they, they had made it independently it was i think timur bikmamatov his company had made it and um, and they premiered it at Fantasia, I think. Okay. And it was called Cybernatural. And then Universal bought it. Blumhouse came in. They did more work on it. And I think the, the work they did, they did green screen or they rebuilt stuff. I think that's one of the reasons they were able to make it at that price point is because, and it's the way that we did it too. I mean, we, we shot almost the entire movie in a house, which was certainly an interesting process. Yeah, that's know? a genius concept, but I can imagine the person editing the film, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute. She said what? Wait, no, no. He said what? You got to cut? No, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've heard lots of stories about the first one. It was, I've been told that they made like 90 to 100 
hundred endings, different endings. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Endings in horror films are really tough. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. I can imagine. Really and I imagine really studios tough. are all about trying to get involved in that too, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at what point, uh, I'm excited about this, what point as being a fan of the first one, did you start to hear, oh, they're going to do a sequel and I'm going to do it? Or did you just start writing what you thought a sequel would be? No, I got, I got a call from uh, Cooper Samuelson, who uh, is one of the one of the guys over there who works at Jason. And I've known him for years and, and we, you know, he reads my material and gives me notes. He's just a really, really smart dude. And I love bouncing stuff off him. And, and he called one day and he's like, have you seen our movie Unfriended? And I was like, dude, <laughs> of course, man. I love that movie. Yeah. And he's like, well, we're thinking about doing a sequel. You know, what would you think about writing and directing it? And like my brain froze because I was, I was simultaneously really energized by the idea and really terrified by it because the first movie was so fucking good. Yeah. You know, it was so singular. I was very cautious about what my first film was going to be because sometimes you only get one, you yeah. know, and I wanted it to be really kind of me and very different and just the fear of doing a sequel to the first movie and trying to figure out like, is Blair still alive? Like, how do you do this? Everybody died, you know, and I just didn't want to do something that was a pale shadow of something that worked brilliantly the first time around. Right. So I said, look, I, I'm very interested, but would you guys be open to the idea that the franchise is the, is the format? the franchise is the movie on a computer screen because I don't think I can do a sequel. Like, I just don't think I can. And it's amazing the way Blumhouse works, you know, and Basil loves because it's such a low price point and, and instead of operating out of like fear and risk, they operate out of like joy and being like, yeah, we can, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Good right. Deal, That's you know? awesome. Yeah. Um, so they were like, yeah, we're wide open, you know, and, and I think they had a similar instinct. I think they knew that it might be a dead end to kind of try to follow that up the same way. So they were wide open. So they were like, figure it out. Well, you know, just come back to us and tell us what you would, what you would do. So there were kind of two trajectories for me for the movie. The first was wanting to run in the opposite direction of the original movie. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's going to be PG-13 instead of R. It's going to be, you know, people approaching 30 instead of teenagers. All the violence is going to be off camera instead of on camera. It's going to be, you know, no ghosts. It has to be real world only. Like I was like, whatever is the opposite, like the opening scene is going to be really awkward and it's going to be a couple that is falling apart instead of like having fun sex games, you know? Right. Yeah. Like no. top to bottom, I'm like, I just want it to be the opposite of the movie. And then the other thing that influenced it was I'd spent a couple of years writing this this other script. I co-wrote it with a CIA agent, a former agent. It was based on one of his cases. And so I spent a lot of time with him and, and then some other people in the intelligence business. And I'd started to learn a lot of things about our technology and government surveillance and like backdoors into phones and really, really kind of unnerving stuff. And sure. I think we've all been kind of waking up to the surveillance <laughs> state that we're living in. Yeah. So my fears, I don't, I was already not a big fan of social media in general. And, and this was just sort of amplifying everything. And then I remember one conversation I had, I made some sort of wisecrack about, oh, but now you're going to tell me that like, if I'm not doing anything wrong, the government's not going to, I have no reason to fear the government. And he was like, well, maybe, but, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> what? <laughs> but, but he said, the thing is that the government is who you should really be afraid of. You should be afraid of the people who can do it. I mean, we're the government, right? So like, we're not going to do this the best, you know, the people who can do it the best are going to be like the 19 year old kid who's like living in their parents' basement and is a fucking pro and yeah. is bored out of their mind and maybe doesn't have a moral compass yet. And is just looking for something to do. Yeah. That's who you need to be afraid of. And I was like, Oh fuck. I didn't, you know, it was just like, it just sent me reeling and then it like sent me down the hole. So that was the other influence when they were like, well, just tell us what you would do. I was like, I'm going to take everything that terrifies me 
and I'm going to put it in this movie. <laughs> oh, and that's, cool. that's, that's kind of where the idea came from. And, and the movie, we set a principle early on that everything that happens in the movie has to be something that has happened to somebody in the real world. And by the end of the movie, it's mostly true. Mostly everything that happens in this film is, is something that has happened to people in, in some sort of sense. Oh, wow. Wow. Man. Sounds really good. I hope you think so when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the dark web is something that exists. Mm-hmm. You probably had to do some unnerving research on what the dark web is about yeah. and what did you discover about that or how deep did you go into it? Well, I went pretty deep. I mean, I, I had kind of been in there before because I was sort of curious about it yeah. earlier. And, you know, it's just funny because the, the dark, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure about calling it dark web. Right. Because, um, I mean, the, the title is sort of decided by, by someone else. And, yeah. and uh, I think that the dark web is kind of actually rather mundane in a certain sensibility. Like, I think if, if you look through human history, one thing that we are just excellent at is just kind of finding the shadowy corner of the park, right? <laughs> to do the things that we don't want anybody to know that we're not doing. Right. And the internet is just kind of a virtual version of that, you know? And I think I pitched it as Jaws on the internet. The metaphor that's always very apt is just you look at the internet as the ocean, right? And I'm not going to butcher it. I think it's called the mesopelagic zone is the zone where sunlight stops. So yeah, it's like, right. what is visible in the water? Like how right. far can you go and, and see is what where we swim, right? Like that's everybody who's on the internet just swimming around the top of the water, you know, and maybe going a little below where light disappears, which is the, I think the bathypologic zone. So the only light down there is light that's produced by animals. And that's most of the ocean. And that's most of the web, most of the way they call it the deep web. And that's just like crap. It's like 95% of the internet is just detritus. It's just Excel spreadsheets from like 1992, <laughs> you know, or like old COBOL sheets of programming that somebody archives and they're just like, so it's, it's basically the visible light thing is apt because it's Google can't see below. Like that's what Google can't see. It's what search engines can't see is the deep web, which is most of the internet. The dark web is a human creation way, way, way down in the deep web where someone's like, Ooh, this is a nice dark spot. Let's build a layer of encryption and then let's just make it so that even somebody accidentally swimming really deep can't find this. Wow. See, I didn't even know that yeah. it goes that deep. That's oh, that's yeah. all the dark web is just like is just the a corner of the dark of the deep web that is kind of sectioned off and encrypted and it's so that people can do stuff in the darkness with extra layers of security so that random people can't just accidentally come upon it. Right. So it's, it's a protected part of an invisible place. I guess it's, wow. a, it's a certain way to put it. So like you need to get a Tor browser and then you need to know the specific onion site to be able to go there because right. you will not find it any other way. And you is know, it all about people just is it all about crime like criminal activity basically is that is it kind of what it's reserved for and hacking and uh, selling guns and doing whatever else I mean, there there was an alarming amount of that i mean it's right. also there's also just a bunch of weirdness and sure. it's like it's like you know there's also just people are hooking up down there because craigslist is too easy right <laughs> to have intimate encounters but yes i mean that's where silk road was and and that's where a lot of you know there's a lolita site i can't remember what it was called silk road they said was like a 10 or 20 billion dollar a year <gasps> marketplace for drugs, assassination for hire, hiring people to fuck with people, just any anything that can be bought and sold. You know, again, it's like in the 1500s, that was like pirates who came across an island that wasn't on a map. And they're like, here we go. This is where we're going to store all our shit. You know? right, like, right. It's the same exact thing, except wow. it's just sort of, you know, it's, it's universal because anybody all over the world can go there. And if you go down there and you explore some of these marketplaces, especially for drugs, it's actually pretty interesting because... 
you know, the people who use it for good, right, for just selling drugs that they're they think are okay. It's very democratic because it's all about reviews. It's like, yes, I tried this thing that he sent me because you just trust. You're like, you're gonna buy drugs from someone that you have to send them Bitcoin or some other, you know, cryptocurrency because you will never know who they are. They're gonna live or die based on their reviews. So it's all about <laughs> user reviews. It's like ninety nine percent of people didn't die by taking this drug and yeah. said they had a good time. So then you buy it from them. You know, it's it's a fascinating place. <laughs> There's like weird video games down there that nobody knows who made them. There's one called sad satan that is like mythical now and you can actually see videos of it on youtube but there's also mythological places called red rooms which is where people go to watch people commit suicide which is very cairo if you guys have seen that that movie the japanese movie it's an interesting place man and it's you know but at the same time very very mundane too it's just the back alley you know the back alley of the internet essentially as far as i know that no one's ever set a movie based around that i think people have talked about it in movies but yeah not 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 so much no what i loved about the first movie too was that you could see that movie and you could have a great time, you know, laughing and screaming at, at watching teenagers that you're growing to hate more and more by the yeah. die in horrible ways, right? And then finally be rooting for the ghost that's killing them and then walk away and be like, ah, it was awesome. And if you're really paying attention though, it's delivering a really remarkable kind of message about cyberbullying and the rise of sociopathy among teenagers right. and the fact that social media is this weird experience where we are stepping into ourselves, looking at our, how we're curating our lives to other people, which teenagers are now doing all the time. Like what does so-and-so think about the fact that I liked this and how come they haven't commented on pretty crazy, you know, and it's an incredibly deep movie. And I think sometimes it doesn't get enough credit for what it was really trying to say. So that was the other side of it was kind of wanting to make sure that this movie was exploring something just not the same thing. That's why we went down the direction that we went. It bothers me that we live in this day and age where we should be really cognizant of, you know, we should know by now. We should understand why Twitter and Facebook are free. We should know this. We should comprehend it. Like we are the product. You know, we, we are monetized constantly and that's the gentlest of the bad things that they can happen with social media. you know and, and it, it just it's just strange to live in this time where like when i was younger my favorite movies were the paranoia thrillers from like the 60s and 70s you know like parallax view and remember the end of the conversation which ends with gene hackman playing the saxophone and you pull back and he has stripped his apartment bare because he was trying to find a bug that may or may not have been planted right there. yes and everybody was all it was like that post nixon thing everybody was like the government's listening in they're planting shit like you can't right. trust them you know and here we are well, like 50 some years later, we, we now have documentation about the surveillance state that has just draped us, you know, right. over the last 10 years. And we're putting Amazon Alexas in our house listening to us talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're like, oh, I don't know we live in. This is really, really awful what the government's doing. Hey, Alexa, what time's that concert tonight? Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable if you think about it. It really you know, is. Like, yeah. we, we're, we're, it's like we're getting more sophisticated and aware all while just deciding that we want to stretch the blinders further and further over our face right well it's hilarious I've, I've heard interviews and read articles that people say well do you care that Amazon or these little pods or whatever can hear everything you're saying. I mean, it's been documented. They can record when you're not ready to be recorded, basically. And people yeah. are like, I don't care. The convenience of having it means more to me than the privacy. That's a crazy yeah. uh, like time in humanity that that has come to that point. It is. I, yeah. think, I think Cooper Samuelson, I think he referred to it as the convenience tax. Is that, that's <laughs> yeah, like, how is it that convenience <laughs> of all things has made us absolutely willing to sort of sell these aspects of our right. lives right. and just give it away? <laughs> It's it is quite remarkable, and um, but but particularly it's just the vulnerability that that the vulnerabilities that are created just for the the board 
technically savvy person to take advantage of. Mm. You know, I think that the, the time that it really clicked for me was there was a, a news story and then the video ended up on YouTube. My son was like one at this point of the nanny cam. You guys know, the nanny yeah. Cam, yeah. you know, which are, which are Wi-Fi. and parents heard a voice from another room and they went in and they heard this like really creepy debate. It was like, I'm going to get it. Blah, blah, blah. And it was coming from their webcam, like where they talk to their infant, you know, like when they yeah. start crying and you say, it's okay, you can go back to sleep. And there was this random person who had gotten into their router and was just talking to their kid. That's and so creepy. And it's like, why? You know? And then, yeah. and then it's this thing called war driving. We put it in the movie and war driving is this thing where people just drive. It's the exact same thing that Matthew Broderick did in war games. War games. You remember where he just had a program that dialed every phone number. Yep. And if it hit a computer, if it, if it was a handshake signal, it would just log that number. And then he would come home from high school. Right. Yep. And then he would just start poking around all those phone numbers that were flagged and seeing like, is there a password? And most of them didn't because right. it was so early in the computer age that he would just connect to the computer and he's like, oh, cool, the phone company. All right, cool. You know, war driving is the same thing where people drive through neighborhoods and then they just scoop up all the Wi-Fi addresses and yeah. they look for unsecured or vulnerable routers and then they just start poking around. Every month there's, I mean, do you guys remember with the, I think they're called view lights. It was sort of the first lights that were Wi-Fi enabled and you can have an app for your phone that can oh, turn yeah. lights on or yeah. off, change the color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like a couple months in, people were like, people are hacking into our system through our lights. There were vulnerabilities within the individual lights yeah. and people were hopscotching from the lights, lights into the router, router yep. and then getting into people's computer. It's breathtaking because there are people out there who are so far ahead of everybody. Like they know this stuff and every time it comes out, they're like, ah, oh, now we got to find something else. And they always will. They will always find something else that we're not thinking about. That shit scares the crap out yeah. of me. You know? It's terrifying. Yeah. My God. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about having this be the first time that you've got almost entire creative freedom for everything. You're directing it. Were you yeah. part of the casting process? Yeah. How did that feel to be able to bring a story to life in that way where your hands are completely in it the whole entire time from beginning to end? It was, I mean, as a, as a longtime screenwriter, it was pretty awesome because yeah. usually what happens is when they greenlight the movie, you're like, oh, that's awesome. And then they go and goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you see, you watch it with everybody else. After yeah, exactly. And you're just like, uh, I wrote a third of this and my name is the only name on it. Well, how'd that happen? Yeah, no, it was exciting. And it was exciting because I, it was something that I really liked and I really saw and, and, you know, particularly because of the way that, that Blumhouse and Basil Loves work where, you know, again, they just have this unique situation where when you have a price point when it's like you're making a movie for a million dollars, any one movie that you make for one to five million dollars can make 200 and some, you know, like get out did. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the budget at the end of the day? It was a million dollars. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and most of it was probably post-production. I didn't realize until we got there, but it's really an animated film, you know? Wow. So we started cutting October 15th, 2016. What's we the, stopped uh, three weeks ago. The running time on it? 93 Not minutes. Oh, that's, yeah. oh, that's perfect. The first cut was, was a nice, juicy two hours and 58 ah. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Although it wasn't technically a first cut. I, I'll, I'll talk about that. But, but 90 but, minutes, uh, is, that's a good, I like that. That's cool. It's a nice tight, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, like my editor and I went through the, the five stages of grief of, of being like, you know, it's not getting shorter than two hours. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we'll walk off of it. <laughs> and then you realize no it needs to be you're in you're out you know I mean I mean, it's a movie you're already asking a lot of people right you're saying you know you've been at work all day you've been sitting in front of your computer so get in your car and sit in traffic buy a movie ticket and then watch a computer screen <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty demanding you know so yeah. so like yeah as it just took a lot of you know you have to get there um, but uh, but no so so as a, as a first time director it was it was kind of a perfect first project because it was going to be really different and it was I had a strong vision for it but it was also I don't know if it's if it's proper to say it's sort of a can't lose 
but there was always that idea of it's like you know when you're surrounded by people whose attitude is yeah this sounds cool let's try it and after 20 some years of usually when you say let's try something no one's ever seen before you get kind of a like do we have to like can't, can't we just do what worked really well like last <laughs> week can we do a superhero movie you know um it really is there's something really remarkable about the way the blumhouse works and where they just they create a very filmmaker friendly environment everybody is in it for the fun and the adventure when suddenly decisions aren't always being made from a place of fear of like oh god that's oh that's risky no 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 when it's the opposite when it's like oh yeah let's try that yeah you know because one of the first things i pitched was the first minute and a half is going to be a password screen so the movie's going to start and the person using the computer is not going to know the password and it's going to be a minute and a half of them trying to get in and for a while it was like are people going to watch that and I, it's still like my favorite part of the movie because people aren't expecting that and I just totally gave it away and people just start laughing because it's it's like you recognize that but also <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's the cool thing about that narrative form is that in that minute and a half you're getting seeded exposition you know that you haven't seen any characters the movie the story hasn't even started yet and you already know that whoever's using the computer doesn't own it. Right. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's like, powerful. The way yeah. that we use computers is, is is fascinating. And to try to figure out how to expand off of what Nelson and, and the filmmakers did on the first movie was, was a real blast. But again, like it was being very involved the first time, but it was also with an incredible team of people who just cleared the way and were really positive and very contributory. And I mean, they were, they, we were all heavily involved in the casting, you know, like we were trying to cast one of the roles. They were like, come back here in the editing room. We want to show you something. And they showed me Betty Gabriel like culturally defining scene from get out which they were still cutting and i was like okay her yeah <laughs> can she will, will she do it yeah but you know it was also the casting was the scariest part honestly because it was the movie was going to live or die based on its authenticity and i mean i had two weeks to write it and we had four days to shoot all the dialogue two weeks to write oh it God. i had two weeks to write the first draft oh, yeah yeah i mean it was the the schedule was really relentless now i had developed the story out pretty intensely as far as the plot sure but dialogue is dialogue and for a movie to, to play as real it can't be movie dialogue sort of right like it, it has right. to it has to be limber it has to be a little bit awkward and not feel scripted How did the actors stay on script pretty much the, the cool thing about the way that the movie was made was it allowed them to i mean we filmed it as a play right you know it was nice actually because after the first day i think they believed me you know because when i met them i was like i need you know they most of them got the script two days before we started filming uh, started first day of rehearsal <laughs> whoa and uh, and i was like i need you guys to make this better because i had to write it really fast and you know i need you i need you to help me figure out how to really in a very short period of time sell believably extensive backstory extensive history because the other thing i wanted to invert was i wanted them to be actual friends you know i wanted their friendships to come under strain and unlike the first movie instead of it sort of being revealed that they they are horrible to each other i wanted it to be the opposite you know i wanted every death to really hurt i wanted the audience to really care about them i wanted them to really care about each other the actors that i got I had an amazing casting director named john mccallary and, and and he just he got such incredible talent Colin Woodell, you know, the, the guy who's kind of the star of the movie, he had to be on screen for 90 some minutes and he has to look into the camera. I mean, this is not like actors do not usually have that kind of that, that's a lot to ask of people. And the illusion is it's, it's in real time. The, well, yeah, exactly. It is a real time experience. It's wow. it's 93 straight minutes of story. Um, <laughs> and uh, so what we did is we filmed it that way. You know, we rehearsed it as a play. And then these guys were amazing. They just workshopped it and they really found their characters. They built relationships. I was kind of reworking the script based on their ideas every night. 
and then the sixth day of rehearsal was the first day of filming and, and it was just like we're just going to keep rehearsing it we're going to keep workshopping it but you're going to be in costume and makeup and we're going to be rolling but we're also rolling you know three hour cards of GoPros clipped to, <laughs> clipped to laptops is that how that works so they're not like staring into a camera those are GoPros on real computers yeah those are GoPros that are connected to the top of, of laptops and then the laptops are, are surrounded by LED lights which is I think how they did the first movie so that it gives them a little bit of extra boost right Yeah. when you film this are the actors communicating with each other in real time yep. or do they are Oh yeah, all in one house in different rooms, or yep. basically how exactly it works. It. Yeah, so we rented a house and uh, we we built. I think I guess it was five rooms. We turned them into five separate apartments, and then I was in a, another room with a really large monitor, and they were all like. Brady bunched on my screen, you know, <laughs> I had what they called a God mic <laughs> um, and it was hooked up to, so they had like a mix minus one so they could hear everybody but themselves. Cause what we wanted to do to make it feel like an authentic Skype call for them, you know, sure, to really right. just make the situation as real as possible for them. So I could, you know, talk to one of them. I could talk to all of them. And mostly what I did is listened. You know, because I mean, I mean, the first take was we had three hour cards. So it was like, OK, so why don't you guys just, uh, you know, why don't you start? And it was amazing because it started really awkward. And then they just did the actor thing where suddenly they were in it and they just started self-directing and they would be like, wait, wait, I messed that up. Go back. And then they would just pick it up. And because and, we weren't cutting, you know, we weren't doing takes. So I was just like, I'm just going to watch this, you know. Cool. And um, the whole thing was shot, what, how many days? We had four days to do the dialogue at first. Yeah. And then we had four <laughs> days to do, we had lots of videos that we had to shoot, but they were all at the same location. We shot 98% of the movie at this one house. And then we had sort of one big company move where we had to shoot a warehouse scene we had to do a green screen thing. So we built that in the warehouse and then we shot on the street outside the warehouse to do those sort of three other, other things, but it was all just in this one house. So when you have that kind of situation where it's like, yeah, it's really fast, but it's like a play. Right. You don't have to do company moves. You have to, so, so we just shot the whole thing sequentially. You know, we, we rarely just said, okay, now we're going to start here. And it was really cool because I think, you know, for, for a first time director, that's probably one of the more challenging things is to say, usually the entire production is oriented around locations and actors availabilities. So it's like, okay, day one, we're going to shoot the finale. And then day two, we're going to shoot the middle of the film. And it was a nice transition for me because every time it was just like, let's start at the beginning and go into it. And occasionally we'd go back and we'd hit, you know, some certain sequences because it was hard. I had to track every performance and I was not doing that at first. I was watching like whoever was talking and I'm realizing I have to be watching everybody. <laughs> right. Wow. That's right. Right. Um, and then watch the reaction and see what they're doing. I mean, yeah. How do you do that? It seems, seems impossible. <laughs> I don't care how big your TV screen is. I know, man. It was, it was a real education. It was a real one. You know, it was a, a, a Ray Bradbury is one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite quotes of his is, uh, as human beings, we need to constantly throw ourselves off cliffs and learn how to develop wings on the way down. And, uh, but even then I didn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't totally that because I was working with the producers of the original movie. I was working with the guy who wrote and co-produced the first movie, Nelson Greaves. I worked uh, really close with Andrew Westman, who was the editor, who, you know, he and I have been in a room for 20 months together now. Because he wasn't just editing, he animated the entire film. It's, a, it's an animated <sighs> film with performance right. elements in it, you know? I mean, he we had to simulate a computer. And that's how, that's how we got to a three-hour cut. We wrapped, and we had to deliver our first cut by December 1st. So we had six weeks. But we had to animate the film. Like, it wasn't like, just throw together an assemblage and just to see how it feels. It was like, no, you have to animate every sequence of this movie. So we lived like in that office for six months and we didn't look backwards. Like we would just do a sequence, use the script as a template, you know, even with the improv and then just finish it and then move forward and move forward. We got done the night before it was due. 
and Andrew said, so do you want to know how long it is? <laughs> <laughs> and he had no idea, but we both knew. We're like, oh, it's oh, long. Shit. And he started stringing it together, and he's like, well, your director's cut is three hours long. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. But the other thing that, you know, I didn't realize was that I had written the script, this happens and this happens, and there was only one slug line, you know, there wasn't even really a slug line. The whole movie's in real time on a computer screen, but it was done in sequences, and once you get into the animation, you realize that's not how, you know, we use computers, we're doing two, three, four things at the same time. Andrew, thank God, had done this before, and had sort of refined the workflow. He was like, well, okay, so we have sequence nine and 10 and 11, could actually all happen at the same time, and I'm like, what? And he's like, give me a couple hours and come back, and he'd put them all together, and it's like, characters are talking about one thing, and two of them are having a text sidebar, and then something else is happening over here, notifications are coming in. And I'm like, are people gonna, I mean, I can track it. And he's like, they will track it. Yeah. Oh, and he was geez. totally right. You know, like it audiences, it's funny because the first test screening was terrifying because after the opening sequence, it just got really quiet. It was like 15 minutes of quiet. And I'm like, oh God, they fucking hate it. <laughs> they're bored out of their minds. And you realize they're just, they're watching. They're into it. They're yeah. watching everything that's happening and they're absorbing. There's an interesting sequence. It's, it's kind of one of the most unusual sequences. I like to watch people watch it because there's two dialogues that are critically important happening at the same time. And one of them is vocal and the, the windows are shifting for the current call window from Skype and the other one is a text conversation and both of them are completely essential to what's happening in the movie see that's genius and no one's ever missed it that's you know? so great and I, but I was really resistant to it at first you know it was it was a real you know and again it was the luxury of, of having it be such a post assembled movie so that there was time to kind of start to you know to really layer and experiment over over a lot of time now to sound like a Michael Bay quote <laughs> did you have to write for the edit there are certain scenes that have to have a seamless cut somewhere but there was or, a lot of manipulation yeah because okay. i mean because we were pulling performances from different days that were part of the same conversation i mean the movie really it was a very mutable process so there were a lot of changes throughout i mean what was fun was that we could come up with a, a sequence idea in the room like oh what if what if there's a sequence where he he does this and he does that and then this happens and that would be really creepy and in an ordinary film, you're like, well, that sounds nice, but then we have to go get Tom Cruise back, and then we have to do this and this. <laughs> right. And in this one, my wizard, Andrew Westman, was like, yeah, okay, g- give me an hour and come back, and I think I'll get it. And he's just created this whole new sequence out of whole cloth, because it's, it's an, again, it's an animated film. So we would come up with new things, and then if we needed an actor to be them, if we needed lines, then we actually rebuilt the set, Matthias's set, the lead character set, in the producer's garage. <laughs> and brought, brought Colin back and just did a day of okay we need this and we need this and and the last time we had him we did a pass where he watched the whole movie including his performance and he re-performanced everything over the movie and a lot of those alt takes which were completely instinctive from him are in the movie this is really bizarre. Although it's actually funny because if you go back and watch it now once the movie starts getting really depressing Colin just stops acting and just starts going like this <laughs> <laughs> and just watching the screen and we were just going oh god should we stop it and it's like no let's let's make him watch it <laughs> and you just see him like looking away and like oh this is so bad it's such a mean movie but it was truly extraordinary just the, the ability to kind of find new ways I mean movies are always rewritten in editorial but this was even though oddly the final product really reads very much like the original script but still there's a, there's a few sequences that were completely post engineered and uh, yeah it was it was wild I mean it was a thrill to, to work on something like this. Very different. I had read that it was originally titled Game Night instead of 
dark web. Mm-hmm. Was that the case? And who decided yeah. to change the name? Well, the original title was Exploit. We, we needed a temp title because they, they wanted to do it in secret. They didn't want to call it Unfriended. So I called okay. it Exploit and, and I came to love Exploit. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so for all I was it like, is. so Unfriended cool. Exploit. But, but we didn't even really know. I mean, I think that they really supported the idea but we weren't going to know until the test screening if it was going to work. Cause okay. it was the first movie was very like in your face horror. This is a slow burn and it it's grim and it's painful. So I think there was always a reservation. It was like, well, let's see, like, do we really want this to be unfriended or is it just kind of a mishmash, you know? And I had my own concerns too, because there are going to be some fans who loved unfriended who are going to be like, this movie has no gore. Like this movie doesn't have, you're not cheering deaths. I don't want to be driven into the ground like this movie can do. So the title was always nebulous. In fact, at the premiere, it was untitled Blumhouse Basilev's movie. And it wasn't until (laughs) two days before that we finally got handed, you know, and it was unfriended game night initially. You're right. Right. Which was what the studio came up with, which I was fine with. I thought it was a pretty good title, actually. But now with a title like that, does that change the plot? Not really. No, the plot of the movie is that it's a bunch of friends in Los Angeles and one in London who were going to meet and do an in-person game night. And a couple of them were like, Ugh, traffic, like, why don't we just do it over Skype? And so they had they essentially like playing cards against humanity over Skype. Although originally it was Settlers of Catan. But I think, you know, I lost that battle. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was it was on Friend of Game Night was kind of what they landed on, which is better than a lot of the things that were thrown out there. There was for a while there was talk of like Unfriended 2.0. And I was like, that sounds like a movie made in 1987. Yeah, it does, right? <laughs> so, uh, then another movie came out called Game Night. Yeah, well, that's what ago, happened. That's what happened. Everybody right? was in love with Game Night, and yeah. I was like, "Yeah, I'm cool with this. This is a cool title. It really works." And and people who went to the first test screenings it was called Unfriend of Game Night, and they were yeah. like, "That's yeah, yeah, Unfriend of Game Night, man." They were tweeting it, and but yeah, the the Jason Bateman movie came out. Uh, it was called Game You're Night. Like, and, Shit. And they're like, "Oh, we gotta change it again." So then we went through another flurry of iffy titles. But but the thing, you know, at the end of the day, the the marketing is not you don't have any say yeah like, they tell you what the title is you right. know and unfriended dark web not bad you know like That's again cool. I, I, like I was a little unsure because again like i have a more sort of mundane approach to what what the dark web is and, and i was concerned that it would kind of feel that like dark web the dark web is gonna get you you know i'm convinced the dark web kind of makes sense that's the thing i think and it just might so speaking of dark web though what is the most disturbing thing you've encountered in the dark web i just think the casualness of certain conversations i I read through some archives of someone hiring someone for an assassination that's crazy Uh, it's like that's the kind of stuff you absolutely think the government's watching Mm -hmm. but they probably can't they can't not really this blows my mind and there is so there's a sequence in the movie that was based on on that exchange wow not to give anything away but it's uh yeah. How did you get in the dark web? Like anybody can do it. Really? I, mean, I don't think I can. I think you have to be invited. I think basically, right? You have to know where to where to go. I think it's like a if, if you're not going right? to a marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a if special browser, right? Yeah. It's it's the Tor browser, and they kind of ping different servers around the world, so it kind of masks who you are, where you are. Yeah. Gen- basically, the idea is that you, you go into like a, a network that bounces you through a bunch of routers, and then lands you coming out another router, so, so that it looks like you're over there when you're actually over here, which is sort of what a VPN does, right. but, but mm-hmm. Tor just has its own sort of special way of, of anonymizing your, your source. And But also, the, you need that browser to tap Onion sites. You need to use that browser to sort of handle the... It's not just a standard URL. Like, if you took an Onion site and put it in, in your browser, it would be like, 
¿Qué pasa? Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, you, you have to use that. But I would also say you get a VPN and do the VPN first and then do Tor so that you're kind of anonymous before you're anonymous. I mean, you do a little bit of reading, but the thing is like, in five minutes, you could be looking at these marketplaces. Right. I mean, go to a dark web site that's not in the dark web. Deep darkweb.com or .net maybe um, <laughs> has a list of the most popular marketplaces for all sorts of things and then it gives you the onion site and then you just plug that into Tor and then bam you're there wow <laughs> I thought like the dark web was the encaprices site I went to for my son who's holding his poop but apparently there's some really that's scary pretty dark. stuff it's pretty dark it's really dark actually most I mean that's the thing like most of it is 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 it's like startlingly mundane but you know I mean you can go shopping down there and you can buy all sorts of strange things and the only thing that it's just anonymous that that's all it is it just uses the kind of ambiguity and that encryption yeah. to say we can exchange stuff we use bitcoin or some other currency that's crypto so i don't know who you are you don't know who i am nobody tracks it but once once i get it i'll send you the thing and i'll send it from some other country and send it to a p.o box <laughs> i didn't i didn't order anything because i was always trying to figure out like how does that part of the exchange yeah work? right because yeah. the comes currency here. can be anonymous but then you say like well now i want you to ship it to me here's my address yeah that's right yeah because you can p.o box is someone someone can hack into a federal oh, for database sure. and look for up sure. loans a post office box. Yeah, that's, can, yeah, that, yeah, that's where it kind of falls apart, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, they, they know how to do it somehow. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, you should you should check it out. I think, <laughs> you know what? If I check it out, he is going to like be obsessed with it. Well, me? Oh, yeah, I probably would be. Yeah, yeah. you would. And you would what? talk about like, oh my gosh, I saw this person. Yes, and, that would be exactly. Yes. That's, that's If you exactly want to be like me. totally safe, what, what you do is you go to a place that has a computer like go to a library that has okay. that, right <laughs> but before you go there's an operating system called tails t-a-i-l-s okay. and the way that that works is the entire operating system fits on a flash drive okay. and the idea with this is that when you put it in a computer it only has things in the computer's ram which means it just eventually goes away it doesn't actually store anything on the computer's hard drive so you can use a computer do stuff pull the chip out that's, that's all it. Gone. Like okay. You didn't leave anything, any no residual trace. stuff on the computer. So do that. Access the dark web from a, you know a Tails system using Tor on someone else's machine. Uh, Burbank <laughs> Library. Really, yeah, yeah, okay, here you. you come. And then don't like enter a chat and be like, "Hi, this is." Uh, so I'm, 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 I live in Burbank. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so it's, it sounds like your your film is shaping up to be a, an anthology. Well, I, I hope they do. From the first one. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see where so they go from here. It yeah. can evolve into something different now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that if it does enough business that they want to do a third one, that they do exactly the same thing. They say, what else can we do with this narrative form? Yeah. But the thing is, it's already being done. I mean, when we edited this film, we edited at Timur Bikmambetov's company. He's, he's the co-producer. He did the original movie. We were editing our movie with three other movies that were all screen movies. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, T Timur Bekmambatov is, is a Kazakh filmmaker. He did Ben-Hur most recently. Mm -hmm. He did Wanted, was his first American film. He did uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. That was a great oh, movie. I love that Fucking movie. love that movie. So he's good. Amazing, so this good. Guy is, he's an incredible visualist and, and just a sweetheart. And he did Nightwatch in, in, wow, in yeah. Russia. And he has a huge uh, production company. He does all sorts of features in Russia. I, dude never sleeps. I don't know how he does it. For this incredible visual scenarist, after doing Unfriended, he became really interested in how far can you take this thing where it's like a movie on a computer. He calls it screen life. And in fact, he's running a competition right now where he opened it up. He's like, send ideas and I'll make your movie. He just keep finances them himself. So we were in an editing room. The editing room next to us was a film called search 
that's now called Searching. It's coming out in Fox two weeks after ours. Filmmaker Anise Giganti, Sabohanian was the producer. It like won the Sundance Award, but the audience favorite at Sundance. It stars John Cho. Have you guys seen this trailer? It's fantastic. It takes place, and it's a computer screen movie, but it's completely different. It has a uh, score. It has time jumps, and it's a movie about uh, a dad whose teenage daughter disappears. Gets her oh, computer. Oh yeah, we did see. We saw the trailer at um, when we okay. saw that movie with Shailene Woodley. Yes, it was. I was. It was oh, the trailer yeah, before yeah. Adrift. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, because was it wasn't Adrift? Was that Fox Searchlight who did? Adrift? I believe. Yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. yeah he's looking on his computer looking for his lost. His daughter goes missing. So yeah. he goes on her Facebook exactly. and he's looking through her account. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. looked really good. So they were right yeah. next door. Oh and, wow. And what was interesting was they were doing in they were doing an inverted process where he, he had these amazing editors whose names are just not in my head right now. Just really sweet young guys, like half my age, like <laughs> brilliant dudes, and and they were uh, they pre-edited the movie so that they would know exactly what they needed to shoot. So they, they made the movie and then shot the performance right. as opposed to us where we got the performance and then, and then animated it. They re they pre animated the movie first. Interesting. And then He's next door to them. To the- yeah. And then next door to them was a filmmaker named Bryce McGuire, who I think is going to go direct a movie for James Wan now, which is awesome. But he, he was doing a movie that took place entirely on Periscope. So that was a screen movie. Well, it was in that app. And then Timor himself was doing a movie called Profiled, which was just premiered, which is based on a, ugh, an amazing true story. You've probably heard of this. It was a, uh, I think it was a French reporter who, like four or five years ago, was trying to figure out how it was that these really young, like 15, 16, 17 year old women from super, super progressive Western European countries like like Denmark and Sweden and France were just disappearing and then emerging married to fighters in like Syria. And how, how that could happen, you know, how right. women raised in that society could find it appealing to go. And they were like getting seduced by people who were like, come here and marry me and put on the burqa and, and I'm going to go, you know, martyr myself. So she posed as a young woman and started up a relationship with a fighter who was trying to get her to come. And, and then he started to get suspicious that maybe she wasn't who she said. And, and he took that story and adapted into a film called, I think it's called Profile now. So we were making all these movies at the same time. And it was fascinating <laughs> because insane. they're all really different, but they have the exact same role where it's like the whole movie has to be on a computer screen. So he's doing like five more now. So yeah, there might be an unfriended three, but he's already like making a whole bunch more. It's, it's really wild. He's, he's trying to figure out like how far can you take this? He did one that was a Cyrano de Bergerac story. I don't know if the movie is going to come out or not, but he did Cyrano de Bergerac as a screen screen. life movie and it was hilarious (laughs) because I mean think about it so it's like it's all about like the handsome jock who wants to seduce the girl right but like needs the brain so he hires the kid so he's like hanging out with her on the pier and he's got his headphones on and she can't see in his pocket that the smart guy's like typing and telling him what to say and he's like checking his phone and saying the witty lines that guy writes for him (laughs) yeah it totally works it works it totally works (laughs) yeah so it's pretty fascinating like he's really he's diving in deep to see what the parameters of you know what within those parameters right can do. And it feels different to me from the found footage craze, I guess, because everybody lives their life on the screen now, right? Yeah. And like you're saying, people processing different chats going on at the same time, you were concerned about that. So people do that all the time, right? They do. Yeah. yeah. And we also haven't, like, Unfriended really wasn't followed up. I mean, there was The Den, which was a really cool movie, but was still sort of different in the way that it was a computer screen movie, but it had a wildly different execution. I don't know. Was that the only one? One found footage film hit? And then a second, and then there were like 60. Oh, yeah, yeah. It just disappeared, yeah. Um, And then you would have your occasional kind of reinvention of it, like, you know, what Cloverfield did was really unique, and like people kind of found their moments. Paranormal activity. Right. And that was that was actually really early. You know, that was, again, like kind of horror being reinvented from the outside. That mm-hmm. was Oren Pelly, who was a computer yeah. guy who was like, 
I'm gonna buy a camera and try this. And yeah, shoot this God, in my apartment so for seventeen thousand dollars. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's amazing anybody even saw it because the studio for a year was gonna spend twenty million dollars and remake it. And, I heard about very, that. Yeah, that was totally true. They, that was their that was their philosophy. It was like this is really cool. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna make a movie just like this, <laughs> with you know TV stars and and it's just like well, and, and they that end that up was, keeping the demo right. Really, is they, what they, it was. Yeah, they, they, they it. changed uh, they changed a couple of things, but not much. I actually like the original ending better. The original ending, I think, is, is much the, more. Where she slits her throat with a knife. She how does it play? Or she gets shot by the police. She gets shot by the police. Right. Yes, that was. I the remember. Yeah, I remember. Which I thought was was cooler, but and it's interesting because that's where I think that was Jason. Blum's he oversaw that at that's the right that was kind of the beginning of Blumhouse yeah, really. that was the beginning yeah. of Blumhouse and yeah. I think I think that's what happened is he saw that like there's just such liberation within a financial paradigm where you can really take risks and, and try and be very filmmaker friendly and it was interesting because that really just kind of changed the course of so much of horror now because Blumhouse yeah. has really just exploded and has become this wellspring for all things well and good right right um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's 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 uh, so yeah. I'm curious to see how far this can go. You know, we're we're well before a saturation point because there's just so few movies using this format have actually been released yet. Now I don't know if it's a spoiler, but everybody's saying there are two different endings to this movie, and you don't know which one you're going to see. Is that true? Um. <laughs> <laughs> He's fidgeting in his chair. <laughs> He's breaking out a cold sweat. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> He's mumbling nonsense. Well, the first assemblage of the movie was three hours long. So yes. there's a lot of footage that is not in this movie. And every time I screened the film, I would essentially say this is the first time you're the first audience to see this version of the movie. And you're the last because the movie oh. has already been changed, but we didn't have time to output it. So you're seeing the other previous version that nobody's ever seen. So the movie is con- like changed as of three weeks ago. And like the, literally we had three hours before we had to lock picture. We had to change something. We had something in there that the studio was like, you have to take that out. And we had three hours to change it. We had the Jaws cue was in the movie. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I pitched it as Jaws on the internet. So there's, there's a moment in the film where one of the characters who kind of knows this stuff is going off on a rant and they start mocking him by going like, dude, so even saying that is considered like, you know, oh, you yeah, do, yeah, you have to get you have to get, you the, get the rights from from like John Williams. and oh, Steven Spielberg. Right. And at the end of the that. credits, excerpt from John Williams. Yeah. Da, da, da. yeah. Wow. They, they, they did. They said they said no. <laughs> so we had three hours to like change sound and picture. I mean, it was it was insane. But uh, but the point being, the movie keeps changing. And I and I think that that's probably what people were what people are to. picking up on. OK, anything beyond that is above my pay grade. Right. <laughs> <laughs> CIA friends. Yeah, exactly. Dark web. <laughs> yeah. But you know, we'll see we'll see we'll we'll see what happens over the weekend. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh man, I can't wait. I yeah, can't wait to see it, man. I'm excited to see you think about it. I'm I'm really it's, it's it is a very fun audience to watch a fun movie to watch with an audience for sure. You know, because yeah. like the, there's there's such an amazing communal thing with with movies and particularly with like horror. You know, it's one of the things I love about horror is watching horror alone it can be really cool but watching it with an audience man is like right. and in real time too that's adds a yeah. whole other dimension yeah. it does yeah yeah it really does and and this movie it, it is very very interesting to watch with 
audiences, especially when, you know, I mean, look, I'm the filmmaker. So, of course, I'm like, especially when they really like it. <laughs> like we screened it at Fantasia and Fantasia is notorious for audiences that just really want to like movies. They're so excited about it. And it was just like the, it was a ridiculous screening. Like they just they were responding to everything. They laughed at every joke. They gasped at everything. It was like, I wish I could have just captured that in a bottle and released it with the, the movie everywhere. Else. Right, right, right. Thank God for Fantasia. <laughs> and that happened with the other film. I was there. I was there eight years ago with a movie I produced called High School, which was a stoner comedy. And it was the exact same thing. Like I tried introducing the film in French and they were very polite about my my butchering of their language. And uh, and I said, how many people are stoned right now? And like two thirds of them. Were <laughs> and then they proved it by laughing for like they laughed at jokes that were so not funny. <laughs> like Jokes that just did not work. They were laughing. I was like, oh, my God, this is I wish every screening could be like that. That's when you do the Blumhouse trick and film the audience and then release right. the trailer with the audience reaction. <laughs> yeah, I, Ryan Turek was up there for that for that screening and we were oh, sitting yeah. next to each other and it was just like, oh my god, this is the best. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys think about it. I hope you like it. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I already Exciting. love it. <laughs> just, you know, I, I will say that it is it is grim. It is a grim movie, and you know it's not like the kind of movie that you leave and you're like, "Yeah, let's go do something." It's it's a little it's a little bit of a you know it's a little bit of a downer. Yeah, let's go to the bar after. Yeah, you know what? Some of my favorite horror movies are the ones like like I said, they stick with you. Yeah, you know, you don't leave them at the theater and oh, that's good. And then no, like you think about it after, and you're in bed at night, and the shadows look a little freaky, and you, you know you can't sleep, and oh, that's yeah, the next level. My favorite movies, you know, the movies that changed my life, like Jacob's Ladder. You know? Right, I saw that. Yeah. I, that's the first time I I walked out of a movie and bought a ticket and went right back in for the next screening. Like you know, wow, I awesome. love that. And yeah. and it's like I would rather, yeah, sure, I'd rather have the movie be polarizing because people have strong opinions about it than if it's just like people forget it five minutes after they've seen it. Exactly. You know? So yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally cool with that. You know, yeah. just to give you the heads up. It's <laughs> <That's, that's> great. <laughs> Damn depressing. <laughs> well, it's awesome talking to you. And Dude, I wish, thank you I wish so like this for picture here. of this place could, could be on the, <laughs> it's, just un, it's an unreal environment. I just, you know, candles and gaslights. Right. And things, you know? That's all it needs. Thank well, you. we'll have to work on uh, putting GoPros on all the monitors and, <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that's unfriended three right, exactly right yeah right? unfriended three is a podcast that goes bad yeah. see that's I've been thinking about that right? you, they might be listening and you should, you should pitch that to them <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to figure it out I'm sure. for those of you who are listening you know I got the address and I didn't know that I had to go through a gate you know right. and then a secret passageway mm, yes yes <laughs> and they took my wallet and car keys for some strange reason I don't know what's about to happen <laughs> dude thank you so much thank man. you guys really for coming to you. This is so super awesome. fun talking to <laughs> Please leave us alone. Get out of there right now. That was the Buku Podcast, episode number 20. Special thanks to our guest, Stephen Susco. Unfriended Dark Web in theaters everywhere now. Have fun checking it out this weekend. It's so awesome. Till next time, Trap for the Buku saying, see you on the other side and at Midsummer Scream. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, Chopped and Sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew. It's a TSP creation. It's time for this a boogeyman to boogie.